0: I've been deeply immersed in a sermon which was preached in 1951. Now that was five years before I was born. And if you put this together, it's not too hard to figure out. Okay, that I am the same age as Pittman Park Church, right? Yeah. Howard Thurman was the preacher of the sermon. The famed alumnus of Morehouse College, and mentor to the even more famous alumnus of Morehouse College, Martin Luther King Jr. Howard Thurman was an extraordinary preacher. In fact, um, I think it was the US News and World Report back in that time named him as one of the 12 best preachers in the United States. This sermon was introduced with a prayer and I would like us to also begin with that same prayer that was so filled with faith and with character. Would you bow with me as we share? We gather together in the quietness each one seeking the level of his own resting place, each one reaching out for peace of mind and spirit in terms that he can understand and in ways that are meaningful. Crowding around the quietness of the many-tongued voices of the traffic of our lives, the restlessness of our age, the churning tumult of our times, the quiet frustrations and the riotous frustrations in the midst of which we live and the temple of which we have somehow committed to our hearts and minds. All these surround us in the quietness, and yet we recognize the privilege of unhurried contemplation of laying ourselves bare to the searching processes of singleness of mind, the privilege of becoming aware of needs of which we are scarcely conscious in our fevered rush, the privilege of hearing voices that need not speak above a whisper in our hearts, pointing us to the way that we should take in the midst of our own problems and responsibilities, our own hopes and our own fears, the time of quiet, the time of searching of heart, the time of regaining of perspective, the time of lifting of hopes about ourselves and the world, the time of insight, the time of renewed renewal of courage. O God, our Father, we thank Thee for the quiet time and for all that it says to the weary, to the proud, to the self-righteous, to the fearful, to the human spirit. Accept our thanks, O God, and our Father. Amen. In the reading of our Scripture just a few moments ago, it is clear that People were constantly vying for Jesus' attention. Word of his healings, of course, had spread far and wide. In fact, Mark makes sure that we know in his writings that a leper had been cleansed, a paralytic had been healed, a man who had a withered Been made capable again of using that part of himself. You can sense the intensity, perhaps even more, in the third chapter of Mark's Gospel, where he says that Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. And hearing all that he was doing, They came to him in great numbers from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea beyond the Jordan and the region around Tyre and Sidon. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crush him. For he had cured many so that all who had diseases pressed upon him To touch him. Can you imagine the intensity of those moments where Jesus, simply wanting to preach, could not do so easily without provisions being put in place in order to keep people at least at a minimum of a distance in order that all could hear what he might have to say? Oh, Jesus was this itinerant prophet and this unconventional rabbi who needed teaching space, who wanted teaching space, and who employed his disciples to create, albeit this moat around him, there as he got into the boat, and these few yards of water that kept the crowd in its natural Amphitheater next to his preaching and his teaching. He began to teach many things, many things. But those things that pull us in are the stories, aren't they? Those provocative stories that we would call parables. The great theologian and professor of years past, C.H. Dodd, said a parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life which leads the listener by its vividness or strangeness and which leaves sufficient doubt about its precise application so that it teases the mind into active thought. Now, if you have said to yourself before about a certain parable, uh, that's a favorite parable of mine. Or if you listen to a parable anew and think to yourself, isn't that a sweet story? We might raise the question, have we really understood the parable if we have such an affinity for it? For Jesus was using parables in order to get under the skin and into the minds of those who were his listeners. And it is a difficult thing to do because we do not relinquish our minds and our spirits easily in this life. This ambiguity and open-endedness that is a part of the very definition of parables. It demands of us, it begs for us that we would respond in some way. You do not walk away from a parable easily. A parable is one of those things that will plague you if you truly give it the attention it deserves. And Amy Jill Levine, a professor at Vanderbilt, says what makes the parables mysterious or difficult is that they challenge us to look into the hidden aspects of our own values, our own lives. And the problem is that we to easily settle for easy interpretations of the parables. We think we've got it. We hear it once, and we hear it explained to us, and we think we've got it. The Good Samaritan story is one that is so easily misinterpreted in this way. Not that doing good deeds is not an important matter and having compassion for those that are in need is a part of that parable, but it is not that part of the parable that Jesus was using in order to transform society. We should not think that we are the only good people around that might be needing just simply a reminder to be better when you see somebody in need. That's not the meaning of the Good Samaritan parable. The meaning of the Good Samaritan parable has to do with the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. Right? Think about this. You and I should be caught short when we hear parables and truly give ourselves to the nature of what Jesus is seeking to communicate. Jesus asks his listeners to buy into a different view of the world. Jesus asks them to come to a different understanding of what kingdom means. In this fourth chapter of Mark, it's interesting to me that that here Jesus begins to explain the parable. He says... When he was alone, it says, when he was alone, Mark says, when he was alone, those who were around him, along with the 12, asked him about the parables, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything comes in parables, in order that they may indeed look but not perceive, and may indeed listen but not understand so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? Which, of course, we know they did not, or he would not have explained it to them. Now, these words themselves are a mystery because it makes it seem as if Jesus may be intending to keep things from some people who are so in dire need of hearing what the gospel is. Boy, I wouldn't want to be one of those persons, right? Don't you think to yourself, I want to know the inner secrets of the kingdom. Don't you know that Jesus wishes this for us as well? Jesus is not playing games with us. I knew a lady Years ago, Sue and I used to bring to church. Who was uh, in a care home, and I still remember Aunt Versie Waycaser, uh who was sharing with me a deep thought one day. Her mind had begun to slip, and her vocabulary too. And uh, she she was reflecting on God, and she said she meant to say, um, "Isn't isn't God great? Isn't?" Isn't God uh, this, this entity that is so overwhelming? What she ended up saying, isn't our God mischievous? <laughs> and I, I thought to myself, yes, you got that right. It seems like at times that God is mischievous, that he's got something up his sleeve. But he's only mischievous for the good purpose of making sure that we get the good news. Because we are so insulated that we are not able to receive these parables, these reminders of how God works. Many parables are introduced with the words the kingdom of God is like. And all of them apply to this prompting of Jesus, this prompting of Jesus to be able to get us to understand the kingdoms of the world in a different way. And the kingdom of Jesus come into our lives in a different way. Of course, uh, we came through that period during Holy Week in which we were remembering the story of Jesus' uh, fellowship with his disciples around the, the table of the Last Supper, and then he goes to Gethsemane, and then he is arrested, taken before Caiaphas and taken before Herod and ends up before Pilate. And You remember the conversation that he had with Pilate. Pilate was no political fool. And so he asked the correct question of Jesus. He said, are you the king of the Jews? I can imagine that there was this very pregnant pause before Jesus said anything, because he, he he was this lamb led to the slaughter. And yet he could not let that go. He could not let that question go. And you remember, his response was, are you asking this on your own part, or are you asking this because someone has told you? (laughs) And Pilate's response to Jesus was, do I look like a Jew? Come on, look at me. Do I look like a Jew? And so Jesus' response to that was, my kingdom is not of this world, which is such a double entendre, you could never get a better one. Because truly, Jesus was no political threat to Pilate, and even Pilate knew that. He washed his hands of what was going on, you know, as much as politicians will at times. But Jesus knew that over the course Of those three years, it was very apparent that even his disciples at this point in his ministry, just as he is about to enter into giving his life away on that hill called Golgotha, that they had not embraced the kingdom in full. They did not understand the parables that had been spoken. They were not inviting the kingdom of God in the way that Jesus had been preaching the kingdom to be. There in the midst of Jesus' thinking about the kingdom, Can't you imagine all that was going on in his mind as he approached the cross? This is a provocative story that has been shared this morning, this parable of the sower. A very provocative story. Now, I'm not a sower, and I particularly am not much of a farmer. I do want you to know that I dabble in tomatoes. (laughs) And uh, Lord have mercy. Sue and I planted some blueberry bushes six years ago. And this is the first year that we've seen anything good happening in that little patch. But Lord knows it did happen. And in fact, if you put a plant in the ground or a seed in the ground, You and I should not forget that growth is going to happen. Not because of all that we do for it, but we can be an impediment to it. I mean, God is the one that sets all of this in motion, isn't he? He is the one that provides for the growth. And yet you and I can not realize how important the decisions that we make are. To welcoming that growth. Surely we can say to ourselves that things are going to grow. I mean, I'm supposing that it was some bird that planted this wild scuppernon vine that's growing at the back of our property. But let me tell you, that scuppernon vine doesn't know what the word stop means. It has covered every surface that's available, it seems. Things are going to grow. Now, if you know about the history of the people to whom Jesus was speaking this parable, you will know that this is not just any farmer that is out there. But this is some kind of subsistence individual who is seeking to eke out an existence on the land. Any good farmer, whether it's in our day or whether it's in Jesus's day, would know that you put good seed into good soil for good results. But this farmer, bless him, he only had a little bit of soil there. And he was doing the best he knew how to put it out and to hope it was going to work out. Oh, if he could have put it out all on that good land. <laughs> oh, he got a little bit on the good land, good on the edges of the good land. And he knew that was going to turn out pretty good, but he didn't own the good land. Somebody else owned the good land. It was the rich people that owned the good land. But he was eking out his existence where he could. And so Jesus tosses this parable out into the midst of that kind of understanding of what farming was for those who had so very little. And he began to explain how he knew that birds can come down and pick it all away. Or that it can be just trampled underfoot or that weeds can choke it out. But there is the occasion when if the conditions are right, you would not believe how much harvest will come. Mark chapter 4, the 26th through the 29th verses has another parable which is connected with growth as well. Jesus said the kingdom of God is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day and the seed would sprout and grow and he does not know how. The earth produces of itself first the stalk And then the head, then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle because the harvest has come. Now, not only does Mark tell the story of the parable of the sower, but Luke tells that story and Matthew tells that story and they surround that story with other parables about growth. I want to introduce to you one other parable that is from the Gospel of Matthew. And I bet that you will be familiar with this, but I want you to hear it in a new way today because, frankly, this is what Howard Thurman in 1951 was alerted to in his reflections on the parable of the sower, that it is also connected with the parable of the weeds among the wheat. Jesus put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field, but while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, no, for in gathering the weeds, you will uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, that gets to be pretty severe right there, doesn't it? (laughs) Because you and I immediately began to think, okay, so who are the wheat and who are the tares or the weeds? Now, these weeds were poisonous, even to the point of of being toxic toward death. If you were to eat the the weeds, these tares with the wheat. But the question that Jesus leaves us with, it seems, is okay, so who would be represented by the wheat? And who would be represented by the weeds? I imagine that the reason that we're gathered here in this place today is because we want to be known as the wheat. In fact, Raise your hand if there's any weed here. You and I, okay, very good, very good, Bob. I was thinking the same thing, Bob. (laughs) You you and I must look at these parables differently than we are conditioned to look at the parables. Because Howard Thurman does a great job of taking this and saying, could it be, could it possibly be that we're not talking about good people and bad people here, but that the divide of what is wheat and what is tares runs right down the middle of each and every one of us. Because to look at it any other way, to look at it any other way, is to let us off the hook. You see how easy it is to get there? Because if we think, I've got my life in order. And it's just the way it is that somebody else doesn't. Then we confine ourselves to the knowledge that I'll add just a little bit of attention to this. But God's got to be the one to work it out. And I don't believe that's what Jesus came to this earth to say. Leave it to me. Now, Jesus was saying the kingdom of heaven is like this that you'll resolve to look inside yourself in order to find where God is at work. What a powerful thing it is when we come to the idea that we must participate with the growth. Of course, in 1951, you know what Howard Thurman was referring to in terms of a nation that could not get their mind wrapped around a new day that was dawning, that were resistant in every way, shape, and form, even if some people still are today, that any change should come. The question raised by these parables of Jesus is whether we will participate in welcoming the kingdom as God intends for it to be. Long before the oppressive form of government was eliminated in South Africa, Mahatma Gandhi was recorded as having said, apartheid is dead. Now that was when apartheid was living and breathing and very much a part of the political structure of South Africa. But Gandhi could see into the future of what God was doing, and it enabled him not only intellectual ascent, but participatory ascent to fight against that kind of oppression. It reminds me that it is not unlike that mysterious book at the end of our Bible that we call Revelation. That John on that Isle of Patmos who was so plagued by these visions that he must write down, that he must write down, which were so connected with the political intrigue and the powers of his day, and also very connected with the intrigue and the powers of humanity in every age, where he began to speak of the new Jerusalem as if he could see it as if he could imagine that life could be different that somewhere in the midst of his visioning that God had given to him that he did not appease himself by simply saying well God will take care of this someday what an affront to Jesus giving his life on the cross. What an affront to Jesus, having this conversation with Pilate just at the point of being flogged nearly to death and saying, my kingdom is not of this world. Do we understand the power in those words. I tell you, the harvest is inevitable. <laughs> it is inevitable. God is going to harvest. If that weren't the case, then you and I are just biding our time for eternity. If we have a picture in our mind that nothing is ever going to change in terms of the good and the bad being separated from each other for time immemorial. Then you and I will not fully participate. Oh, we'll add a little bit here, a little bit there, a little kindness. But you and I will not be as invested as Jesus needs us to be in the welcoming of the kingdom of God. I rode past those crosses on the courthouse square. Have you been by there? It's moving, moving, moving. To see the names and the individuals Who were seeking to invest their lives in the right way. I do not doubt that those crosses absolutely represent persons who were seeking to invest their lives in the right way. Recently I was out at Lake Primitive Baptist Church, a member of Pittman Park had died, Harry Warren, and we journeyed there for his burial right beside his dear wife, whose funeral we shared together in a year and a half ago. And Harry was laid to rest there. And it occurred to me, that that cemetery is different than most cemeteries at little country churches. I don't know how it came to be. I'd be interested to know the story. But Lake Primitive Baptist Church didn't put their cemetery in the backyard. It's out front for everybody to see. In fact, That is the first thing that you see when you come close to the front doors of that church. And it is a powerful reminder. What do we do with life now? Down at St. Simon's Island at Christ Episcopal Church. Wesley would have even seen the graves, some of the graves that surely were gathering around that little place as he was preaching out under the oaks. And now it completely surrounds the church, the cemetery does. As we think about not only those that have gone before, but we think about our own lives The question should come to us when we hear these parables, particularly these provocative stories of Jesus. Are we, are we truly participating in the growth of the kingdom in the way that Jesus would have us to? Surely there will be a day when all things are set right. But my prayer right now, may God give us renewed spirit to participate in the growth of the kingdom of God today. Let's sing the same hymn that closed worship 65 years ago at Pittman Park Church.